The opening statements by both the state and the defense are in the books, each one vastly different than the other, with the state focusing on pulling on the heartstrings of the jury in order to invoke the desire within them collectively of wanting vengeance. It was the easy call, the low-hanging fruit, the topic of what the state had to prove in order to allow the jury to convict the creep was nearly an afterthought. As Egan, towards the end, would complete his sentences with words like planning, thoughtfulness, rational mind. This was the full extent of which the state believed it needed to cover. What would have to be established beyond a reasonable doubt, the defense was a vastly different story. The entirety of the opening focused on diffusing the preconceived notions each and every one of the jurors walked into the courtroom harboring. Mata attempted to educate the jury about the distinction between crazy, as we use it, and the legal definition of insanity. My father eloquently informed the members of the jury that Gacy's actions were a compulsion that he quite simply could not control because he was broken mentally. My father's no fool. He understood and addressed the elephant in the room, which was that every person in that courtroom, with maybe the exception of one of his lawyers, wanted that son of a bitch to fry. But the law does not allow for revenge, no matter how devastating and vile his actions were. If Gacy was truly incapable of conforming or controlling his twisted impulses under the letter of the law, he cannot be held criminally responsible. This is a bitter and enormous pill for the jury to swallow, as they will sit for five weeks in a courtroom with the absolutely heartbroken families of the victims who will be looking at them to do what needs to be done, which is to find Gacy guilty and sentence him to death. So the justice is served. But is that really justice? It certainly is revenge, but the two concepts are not mutually exclusive. Is it just to hold someone accountable for actions that they truly could not control? I don't believe that it is, but we still, to this day, even the best and brightest scholars can only surmise as to how our brains operate. Every diagnosis is made after the fact and is designated as some made up term for the condition. My father said it most succinctly when he instructed them to forget how the experts categorize Gacy because there is no category for him. He is broken, he is abnormal, he is not like the rest of us. Just use common sense and take the difficult path, the unpopular path, and find him not guilty by reason of insanity. It would take 12 extraordinary people to fight themselves to reach that conclusion. And this jury was not those people. This was not a black and white case. No, it was firmly entrenched in the gray areas, in the unknown, in the unanswerable. And most of us are very uncomfortable in those spaces because nothing, and I mean nothing, terrifies us as human beings more than that which we do not understand. Welcome to 
Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 33. By reason of insanity. It is on this day, February 8th of 1980, that the state begins its case in chief against Gacy. Remember that after the opening statements, it's the state that puts on all of their witnesses who are cross-examined by the defense and they get all of their evidence in through those same witnesses. When they are done, it's the defense's turn to do the same. After both sides rest, the state is allowed to put on rebuttal witnesses. Rebuttal witnesses must specifically rebut evidence that came in during the defense's case in chief. It's not a free-for-all. The state can't just call a witness that they forgot to call in their case in chief. Now, during the Gacy trial, the state put on 77 witnesses and the defense put on 22. Don't panic. We will not be covering 99 witnesses in this final episode. No, we will focus on the crucial witnesses, namely the mental health experts, as the state spent a lot of time having the cops and lay witnesses testifying to exactly what we've covered over the course of the season. So there is no reason to regurgitate it here. And further, what was covered during the trial will be summarized by both sides during closing arguments. So look at it like this. It's as if you have been the jury for the entire season, hearing all of the details of the crimes that will come out at trial. Now, it's 40 plus years after the fact, mental health awareness has come a long, long way since 1980. And your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to put yourself in the shoes of the jury, except with a 2022 mentality, as opposed to a 1980 mentality. Listen to the testimony of the witnesses that we go through. And I want you to decide for yourself, if Gacy was tried today, which way would you vote? Maybe we haven't progressed as much as I hope that we have as a society. Maybe an eye for an eye is just too hard to overlook. Maybe the creep being locked in a mental institution just does not meet your definition of justice. There are a multitude of reasons that factor into the decision, but at the end of the day, if you choose to follow the law, it seems difficult to ignore what your common sense tells you about someone like Gacy. If in fact, it was a compulsion that he was simply unable to control, the law says you must find him not guilty by reason of insanity. But sitting in that courtroom, staring at those grieving parents for five weeks, well, that might just be too damn hard to do because it has such an unfulfilling ending. It makes it feel as if he got away with it. Let's see where you land. Let's dig in. The hallway outside of the courtroom on this particular morning is filled with the grieving mothers and fathers, spouses, and significant others of the dead boys as they all wait to be called to testify as proof of life witnesses. These poor souls will be required to take the witness stand one after another and they will be asked to recall for the jury that their child was once a living, breathing soul who, prior to Gacy ensnaring them, had graced our planet with her presence. It will be absolutely heartbreaking for the jury to witness. This fact is, of course, not lost on Bill Kunkel and the state. They know that while proof of life is a requirement in a murder case, that the much more significant impact on the jury will be hearing the gut-wrenching testimony of these people in mourning. There will not be a dry eye in the house. These 22 witnesses will constitute the sum total of victims that Dr. Stein and his team 
were able to identify during the year in between arrest and trial. 11 of the victims remain unidentified and are referred to as John Doe's for the purposes of trial. Now, if you're wondering if trying a person for murdering an unidentified victim is extremely rare, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And this case was a perfect example. Court is called to order and Garippo takes a seat on the bench. He inquires if the state is ready to call their first witness, and in fact, they are. The state begins calling the mothers, the fathers, the wives, and the girlfriends of the deceased young men. The second coming of the Trail of Tears. All told, the state would end up calling 26 proof of life and death witnesses. One after another, they would proceed to take the stand and the state would guide them all through testifying to whom each and every one of the 22 identified young men were, when and where they were born, the dynamics of their families, snapshots of who they were as young men, and then finally, the last time that they saw them and the circumstances that led up to those moments. Every witness fighting through exasperated sobs to inform the jury that each and every victim was a human being, sometimes flawed, sometimes not, but to a man, not one of them deserved the fate that ultimately had befallen them. These witnesses were on the stands for days, delivering gut shot after gut shot to not just the jury, but to the entire courtroom, leaving those in attendance absolutely wrecked. Their testimony at the end of the day had more of an effect on the jury than 50 experts pontificating about what is wrong with Gacy. Is that right? Is that the pursuit of justice? Probably not, but it's human nature. Producing empathy is a very powerful tool to have at your disposal as an attorney. We are not robots equipped with AI. Emotions commonly rule our decision-making process, which is both a strength and a weakness. There was one person in that entire courtroom who felt absolutely nothing. And I need not tell you who that is, because you already know. After the state finished putting on the family members to establish proof of life and proof of death, which allowed for all of those who had testified to stay in the courtroom to observe the state prosecute the man that murdered their loved ones. Before the state was to begin moving into the investigation portion of the trial, with the cops being called to testify, Judge Garippo advised the jury that the court had some matters to address outside of the presence of the jury. The jury was escorted out of the courtroom and Garippo addressed both sides, informing them that the time had come to deal with the evidence from the first search of the home that may need to be suppressed. These are what they call motions in limine, and I've discussed them before. So Garippo asked both sides what items in particular are at issue. Kunkel answers. He says the piece of rope with the hair that was found in the trash can. Garippo, without hearing argument, states the rope can be admitted. Kunkel states a two by four with two holes in each end which is what the creep used when he was torturing Rignall and countless others, I'm sure. Crippled then asks, under what theory would you seek to get that in? He then asks Kunkel for the first complaint for warrant. No one has the document with them in the courtroom and Garippo takes a recess so the state can go grab it. When they get back, Garippo reviews the complaint for warrant. Garippo asks where the board was found within the house. Kunkel tells him in the Southwest bedroom. What else? Garippo asks. The photo receipt, but that's already in. What else? The handcuffs and keys. Where were those located? The dresser on the north wall of the southwest bedroom. What else? The rope with the hair. 
It was found in the kitchen trash can, same one as the photo receipt was found in. Garippo asks to see the rope. He then rules on the three items without further argument. With respect to the board and the handcuffs, I will allow those in, in light of the complaint for a search warrant, and that they could have been used for a restraint. Mata Sr. tells Garippo that with respect to the board, there is no indication that it was used ever for anything. Kunkel says, there will be. Garippo shoots him down. It may be used. I'll wait on the ruling on the rope until I see it. Call the jury back in. Kunkel then shifts the trial towards Robert Peast, specifically, to begin to tell the tale of how young Robbie ended up in the creep's clutches. To do this, he calls Kim Byers first, followed by another employee named Linda Mertz, and finally, one of the owners of the pharmacy, Phil Torf. Now, Byers is a witness that we will examine a bit more closely, and you, of course, know why that is. Now, if you've been paying attention to this densely packed podcast, you should, without question, be able to guess which of the three state's attorneys will be calling Kim Byers to the stand and will handle the direct. If you said Kunkel, well, you should be ashamed of yourself. It could only be one man. That's right, Terry Sullivan. Sullivan stands and announces the state will be calling Kimberly Byers to the stand. The bailiff at the back of the courtroom steps out into the hall and retrieves Kim Byers. The now 18-year-old young lady takes the long walk down the aisle through the gallery of the courtroom. She makes her way through the well of the courtroom and settles into the witness chair. It's hard to imagine how absolutely consumed she must have been about this day for the last year and some change. She knows the story. She must stay the course, as Sullivan will do all that he can to give her a nice soft landing. On top of that, there's been zero indication that the defense has figured out what exactly took place with respect to that singular piece of evidence that led Gacy to be sitting in this courtroom in front of the judge, jury, and executioner for his long overdue comeuppance. Sullivan has surely been providing Kim with the comfort of knowing that the secret remains safe. Just stay the course and you'll be on and off the stand in 15 minutes. Kim, who's visibly shaken, leans in towards the microphone as Sullivan begins his direct examination. Sullivan begins with background questions. Name, age, establishes that she's a freshman at Winona State in Minnesota. He asks her where she lived and worked prior to going away to college. She answers in displays, and that she formerly worked at Nissan Pharmacy. He further establishes that she is familiar with Robert Peast by handing her a picture of Rob and asking her to identify who it depicts. She answers, Rob. Now, these types of questions that establish times and places or when and where things occurred is called laying a foundation. A foundation must always be laid down for the trier of fact because it gives the jury context and a frame of reference, which is crucial when building a case. Sullivan establishes that she is on the swim team at Maine North High School, which caused her to have to start her shift at 520 as opposed to five. Sullivan then moves to December 11th. Calling your attention to Monday, December 11th, 1978. Did you work on that day? Yes. Do you know approximately what time you arrived at work on December 11th? About 20 after 5. And when you arrived at the pharmacy, was Rob there? Yes. In fact, did you have various conversations with him during the night? Yes, I did. At any time during the evening, did you see in that store an individual who was identified as John Wayne Gacy? Yes. 
and tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury where you saw him within the confines of Nissan Pharmacy. In between the aisle, he was taking measurements. Measurements of what? They wanted to remodel the store. Was he introduced to you? No. Were you advised that, in fact, he was a contractor who was remodeling the store? Mata objects. It's a leading question. All of them have been. Garippo overrules. She may answer. Yes. Even being in the aisles, Kim, have you seen Mr. Gacy at any other place in the store? Yes, I saw him talking to Phil back near the pharmacy. Can you describe very briefly where the checkout register would be at Nissan in relation to the front door? Now, he's laying the foundation for borrowing Rob's coat. It's right near the front door. Now, if I were to walk in the front door, where would the checkout counter be? On the left. And in relation to the front door, where is the pharmacy counter? It's in the back of the store. I ask you at this time, Miss Byers, to look around this courtroom. Tell the jury whether or not you see John Gacy in the courtroom today. Yes, I do. Please stand up and point him out. She stands and points at the creep. Sitting right there. At any time during the evening that Rob was working on Monday, December 11th, did you see him back by the pharmacy counter? Standing near the pharmacy counter? Sitting or standing. He was sitting in front of the counter, checking in items. When you say checking in items, explain what you mean. Well, certain nights of the week, we would get supplies and articles for the store, and he would have to put the price tags on them. During the time that he was checking in items, did you see where Mr. Gacy was? No. Well, at that certain time, he was talking to Philip when I walked in. Where was that taking place, that conversation? Near the pharmacy. Do you recall what you were wearing on the night of December 11th, Kim? Yeah, I was wearing black pants and a short sleeve shirt. Did you have a coat? Yes. When you came into the store, what did you do with that coat? I hung it up in the back, in the bathroom. Do you know any of the clothes that Rob Peast was wearing on that evening? Yes. He was wearing brown pants, a beige shirt, and a blue down jacket. Now, did he have any duties that would require him to put on and off that jacket during the course of the evening? Yes, he had to take the garbage out. Okay. At any stage during the evening, Miss Byers, did you see that down jacket in the checkout counter? Yeah, it was sitting next to the counter. Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury whether or not you, in fact, used that jacket? Yeah, I was cold because the people were coming in and out of the store, so I put it on. Miss Byers, I show you at this time what has been previously marked as People's Exhibit Number 38 for identification. Will you take a look at this and tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury whether you recognize this jacket? Yes, I do. It's Rob's jacket. Is this the same jacket that you put on that evening? Yes. Now, during the time that you were wearing this jacket, did you do anything in relation to any photography? This is the million-dollar question. How many times must have Sullivan gone over this question and answer with buyers? Yes, around 7.30 that night, the store was kind of slow, and I had some pictures I wanted to be reprinted, and I filled out some envelope, and I made a few mistakes, and I finally completed the one envelope, and I tore off the receipt, and I usually just throw the receipt in the garbage. I hesitated, and then I stuck it into Rob's jacket. You were wearing the jacket at that time? Yes, I was. Now, is this a receipt that you tear off the top of the film package? Yes. 
at some time after you placed this receipt in Rob's jacket, did you take the jacket off? Yes. Did you ever remove the film receipt from this jacket? No, I did not. What did you do with the rest of the envelope other than the film receipt? We had a bag on the side of the counter where all the film would go. I put it in there. The company would pick it up every day. Did you place the envelope then in that? Yes. Miss Byers, I show you what has been previously marked as exhibit number 40 for identification and ask you to examine what is inside the clear plastic envelope. Will you please? And then tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury whether or not you recognize this. Yes, I wrote this envelope out myself. What is enclosed in this plastic evidence envelope? There are two things. Will you explain what they are? Yes. The big one is the envelope that I put the negatives in, and the top one is the receipt that you tear off. And what number is on that receipt? 36119. 36119. Yes. Is that the same number that appears on the envelope portion? Yeah. Now, is the envelope portion in substantially the same condition other than the writing that is not in red as when you turned it in and placed it in the developing bag in Nissan Pharmacy? Yes. Sullivan goes on to ask her about what happened after that. She told the story we all know, that Rob ended up leaving the store around 9 p.m., saying that he was going to go talk to a contractor about a summer job. She states that she left work at around 10 p.m. and that Mrs. Peast had called twice to see if Rob had returned, which he had not. Sullivan then asked Byers if she had any conversations with any of the Peast family the following day at school. She states that she had, in fact, spoken with two of Rob's siblings, Carrie and Ken. Sullivan then confirms that there is a logbook to the film that is turned in to be developed, which indicates who and when the film was turned in by. He has her confirm that she logged her film into the book on December 11th. He then has her identify the logbook itself and identify where in the book she logged in her film. He is careful to have her state that in fact it was her writing in the logbook. He then goes through a series of photographs that were developed by her, which she identifies as the photographs that she did in fact develop. Sullivan is done. He sits down. Amaranti is given the opportunity to cross-examine her. He declines. Kim Byers is done. She leaves the witness stand, successfully completing one of the biggest frauds in the history of American jurisprudence. This is the story that would be told for the next 40 years, and the defense didn't even cross-examine her. Bobby Egan then calls Linda Mertz, she confirms that the Displains police had, in fact, come to collect the logbook on December 19th. The state then begins to call all of the Displains police officers that were a part of the investigation, which includes Ronald Adams and Joe Kozenzak. Uncle handles the direct examination of Adams. He asks him what exactly he had done on December 12th. Adams details that he spoke with Mrs. Peace that morning and had a phone conversation with Kim Byers as well. He later testifies that he went to Maine North High School and had a second conversation with Kim Byers. Adams does not testify that Kim Byers made him aware of the photograph receipt being placed in Rob's jacket on the 12th, which Greg Badeau had testified to during the motion to quash hearing, stating that he had become aware of the receipt on December 12th, which is very significant 
because the first search of Gacy's home occurred on the very next day. Kunkel then guides Adams through the search at Gacy's home on the 13th. Adams claims that he personally does not recover any items during the search, which is odd because it was Adams who recovered the plastic wallet insert from Gacy's garbage can. It seems as though this must have been done purposefully due to the fact that Kozenzak would be testifying next, that he, in fact, was the one who found the receipt in the garbage can in the kitchen. It would certainly seem strange to have two separate cops digging through one trash can at the same time. Kunkel then weaves his way through the rest of Adam's activities during the course of the investigation, all of which have been extensively covered during the season. Kunkel has Adams testify that he and Officer Pickell picked up the logbook from Nissan Pharmacy on December 19th, after which time he calls the buyer's residence and informs Mrs. Byers that he needs to speak with Kim. There is one question with regards to this meeting that Kunkel asked Adams, and I found it telling in light of the background that we've uncovered during the course of the season. It's incredibly interesting looking back through a completely different lens now as to how particular matters were handled and by whom, as far as the state's attorneys go. We have the ability to noodle our way into the minds of these witnesses to a certain extent with respect to how carefully the issue of the receipt had to be handled. The narrative of where and how the receipt was purported to be discovered and all of the steps that had to be taken in order to perfect in the court record the malfeasance that was perpetrated on the court and the public. With that being said, I can only imagine that Adam's heart jumped in his chest a bit when Kunkel asked him these questions. Question, at approximately 8.20 that evening on December 19, 1978, at the Displains Police Department, did you have a conversation with Kim Byers? Answer, yes, I did. Who else was present? Mr. Byers brought Kim into the station for a written statement. Now, we know from Kozenzak's book that both he and Mrs. Peast were in the room with Kim Byers on that evening. Question, and during the course of that conversation or statement, did you ask Kim Byers to bring in anything to you or discuss any physical objects that might have been in Kim Byers' possession at that time? Now, this is the question that must have had Adams shitting himself on the stand. It's a strange dynamic between a lawyer and their own witness. When the lawyer asks a question that is either entering into dangerous territory or is one that the witness is not sure how the lawyer wants them to answer, this seemingly innocuous question, at least to everyone else in the courtroom, is the closest the state came to letting the cat out of the bag about where they really procured that receipt. It has always been the position of Darren and I that after Adams and Piquel go and get the logbook from Nissan and confirm that Byers had developed the film on the 19th, that Adams then calls Byers' house and tells Mrs. Byers that he needs to discuss a piece of evidence, specifically red photo receipt number 36119, at which time Byers is brought to the station by her father and is approached by Kozenzak, who in turn convinces her to hand over the receipt right then and there. So this question by Kunkel to me confirms that he in fact was not aware of the planting of the receipt because if he was, there is no way in hell that he asks Adams this question. Adam answers, 
I don't recall. Now, does anyone out there believe that Adams doesn't recall the whereabouts of the receipt on the 19th? You shouldn't, if you've been listening carefully to the pod. He answers it the only way that he can, because Kunkel has unwittingly asked a potentially explosive question. Kunkel is confused by Adams' answer, as I believe that Kunkel was referring to the developed pictures and not the receipt in the previous question. Kunkel has no idea that the only thing that Adams would be thinking that Kunkel is referring to is the receipt and is wondering why in the hell Kunkel is asking him that question. Kunkel follows up. Man, I wish I could see what Adams' demeanor on the stand was. The eyes tell the tale of a witness on the stand every time. Question, did Kim Byers ever bring you any photos or a photo envelope? The old man objects, the basis leading. Remember, on direct, you can't lead the witness. Garippo overrules the objection. Adams can answer. The photo envelope, I believe, was obtained from the pharmacy. Kunkel moves on to a different subject, only to come back to ask a question about the photo envelope. Question, on December 21st, 1978, investigator, did you again go to Nissan Pharmacy? Answer, yes. And did you have occasion to pick up any physical evidence at that time? Yes. What was that? A photo envelope. Now, to anyone reading these transcripts over the past 40 years, this exchange would have meant very little. To us, it was an action-packed minute and a half. The follow-up question about the photo envelope just cements exactly how taken aback Adams was when Kunkel asked the original question. So close. Kunkel finishes up with Adams, and he takes a seat. Egan stands and calls Kozenzak to the stand. Kozenzak saunters past and takes his seat on the witness stand. He locks eyes with the man who referred to him exclusively as asshole. Egan proceeds with his direct of Kozenzak. He gets his professional background, establishes that when the case started, he was a lieutenant, and after Gacy was arrested, he was promoted to captain. He continues, establishing how Kozenzak became aware of the peace case and to whom he assigned it to, which was the Youth Bureau. Adams and Bikel end up being the leads initially. He then informs the jury about how they came to find out Gacy was a contractor and had been at the pharmacy at the same time as Peast. Essentially, Kozenzak testifies to everything that we have gone through in the pod with a fine-tooth comb. The first meeting with Gacy on December 12th, the sick uncle, the trip to the hospital, Casey showing up at 3 a.m. to the station covered in mud. Casey coming back the following day. The written statement by Casey denying any involvement with Peast. The drafting of the complaint and the warrant while Casey is in custody. The warrant getting signed. Asking Casey for the keys to the house for the search. The execution of the warrant by Kozenzak, Adams, Tovar, and Kautz. Then, Egan asks Kozenzak who they met at the house. Kozenzak answers an evidence tech by the name of Carl Humbert. Egan asks, and what department is he from? Officer Humbert is from the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department. So this is the first time the defense would ever hear Humbert's name mentioned by anyone. Caribou calls a sidebar at the bench regarding the rope. He hears brief argument and then decides to suppress the rope. It cannot be introduced at trial. Egan continues, once you went into the Gacy residence at 8213 Somerdale, what is the first thing that any of the officers did? Answer, 
Officer Humber from the Cook County Sheriff's Police took photographs. Question, did he take photographs throughout the house? Yes, he did. Did he also take photographs of the garage area? Yes, he did. The purpose of a lawyer asking a question about who took the photographs and when is to lay the foundation to get them into evidence. The court needs to hear the background about the who's and the what's and the when's in order to lay a proper foundation. This holds true for any demonstrative evidence that either party seeks to get admitted in. Mata Sr. then interjects and re-raises the issue of the handcuffs being allowed in. He claims that the attic was not fair game to search. Egan argues that Peast was up in the attic, which of course, they did not know at the time of the search. Garippo rejects Mata's argument and the cuffs remain in. Egan then proceeds to have Kozenzak describe a series of photographs that were taken in Gacy's home on the 13th, all for the purpose of getting them admitted. Egan then gets to the meat of the matter. Question, once evidence tech Humbert went throughout the house and the garage taking the pictures, did you then commence a search? Answer, yes. Did you recover a piece of paper from the kitchen garbage area? Kozenzak commits perjury and answers, yes. What was that piece of paper? The piece of paper was a photo receipt. Egan then approaches Kozenzak and hands him the clear plastic evidence bag that contains the top torn portion, which constitutes the receipt, and the envelope that would eventually, after the film is developed, would contain the photographs. He asks him to describe what he's looking at. Kozenzak does. Egan points out some identifying marks, such as the date of 1213 and Kozenzak's signature on the back of the receipt. He then asks him, did you inventory this with the Displains Police Department? Answer, yes, sir. So that's it. Egan has laid the foundation for the receipt and it will be admitted into evidence. Once it's in, it's in. This should have been, it's a, your favorite time, it's my favorite time, it's how to plant evidence and get away with it time, but it's all right there for you. The path that that little piece of paper took was treacherous, but it found its way into the annals of the Gacy case without ever being detected as being a fraud. Until now, of course. Egan then uses Kozenzak to move the handcuffs and the torture board and a hair that was found in Gacy's trunk into evidence as well. Egan finishes going through the investigation that we have covered so thoroughly throughout the course of this pod. As the jury, unlike you out there listening, has never heard the story of how they got Gacy into custody. Egan finishes it with Kozenzak, then the state calls up several more officers to fill in the gaps of the investigation for the jury. The state then calls Robert Zimmerman, who was the gas station attendant who Gacy gave the weed to on the day that he was arrested, and who also testified that Gacy had offered him beer, marijuana, and blowjobs on a prior occasion. Richard Raphael, one of Gacy's many business partners, is called to testify about his dealings with Gacy during the week leading up to the arrest. After Raphael came Tony Antonucci, who literally told the exact same story that he told on the podcast. The state at this point is approximately 35 witnesses into their case in chief. At this juncture, the first 22 to testify were proof of life witnesses, followed by the cops who investigated the case. Now, Kunkel shifts gears and moves to the heart of the case. In order to meet his burden, which is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the creep is sane. Kunkel starts building his case for sanity, and the first witness he calls in order to do that is David Cram, the creep's right-hand man. The state has made the decision not only to forego charging Cram as an accomplice, but instead to put him on the stand to testify against his former boss and friend. He was one of the two men my father feared most in terms of testifying against Gacy. Let's see if those fears were warranted. Sullivan conducts the direct of Cram. He establishes that as he sits in the witness chair, he's 22 years of age. Sullivan asks him how he met Gacy on July 26th of 1976. Question. Well, sir, I was hitching down Elston Avenue. I was coming home from work and John pulled up in an Oldsmobile silver station wagon and he stopped. And I got in and we started talking and I noticed a PDM contractor sign in the window. And I stated that I was interested in construction. And he said that there might be some work for me, but that, you know, I should give him a call that evening. So I did. And he told me to meet him at the corner of Irving and Cumberland, where I'd be picked up by one of his employees. Question, did somebody pick you up? Answer, yes, one of his employees. I believe his name was Randy Stewart who picked me up. Where, if anywhere, did Randy Stewart drive you? He took me to 8213 Somerdale, John's house. When you arrived at Mr. Gacy's house on the night of July 26, 1976, did you go anywhere? Yes, we went to Opie's hot dog stand, I, I believe. During the time that you were driving to Opie's hot dog stand, did you have a discussion with John Gacy? Yes, I did. Explain what the discussion was. Well, he was telling me about how his company was run and what jobs he was doing and how he planned on building the company up. Did he tell you anything about the degrees he had? Yeah, he did. He, he told me about a degree in psychology and sociology. He, he just built himself up like that. While you were riding in the car, did he tell you anything about his psychology degree? Yeah, he said it was good to have one, especially if you were in the trades, because uh, it would make you more able to more or less manipulate people a lot easier. Did he have any type of set saying that he gave in relation to manipulating people? Well, he more or less said, plant the seed in the head and let it grow like a forest or something to that effect. Did Mr. Gacy during that ride discuss anything else with you, Mr. Cram? Yes, he did. Tell the jury. Well, he was describing his company and how an individual could progress and so forth and so on. And he told me that, I don't know, he just kind of faded into a conversation that he was bisexual. What did he tell you about being bisexual? Well, like if I went out, uh, I'd have a 50% chance of picking somebody up. And if he'd go out, he'd have a 100% chance. Uh, did he tell you anything else about being bisexual? Yes, he explained how an individual could progress in the company on their own standings or morals. Like, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Uh, you know, that's what it boiled down to. Did he tell you if you would scratch his back that you could make higher than three bucks an hour? Yes, he did. Did he say anything to you about the level that he likes to work with his employees? Yeah, he said he likes to keep it more or less on the personal level, like, you know, buddy-buddy relationship. During this conversation, did he discuss any socializing or parties that he had at his house? 
Yes, he said that after jobs, he had a fully stocked bar, but you know, he didn't mind if the employees came in and had a few drinks and, and so on and so forth. Did he tell you about any parties that he had recently? Yeah, he was explaining something about, I think it was a bicentennial party or something like that. Did he tell you what type of people were at his party? Yeah, he said he had all kinds of official people, politicians, lawyers, judges, you know, very impressive. Did Mr. Gacy honor about August 20th or 21st make an invitation to you? Yeah, I think it was around the end of August that he told me that he had recently divorced and that he had plenty of space in his house and he has three rooms, three bedrooms, and for 25 bucks a week, it'd be a lot easier for me to live there and then, you know, get up for work and so on and so forth. And then I'd have the whole house to myself, you know, in my own bedroom and, and so on and so forth. Did you move into the house at that time? Yes, I did. Sullivan then starts methodically questioning Cram about how skilled Gacy was, not only at carpentry, but at running a business. He's able to establish that Gacy used manuals or trade books to learn skills that he did not already possess. Cram testifies that Gacy hired young men because he wanted to give them a chance to work so that they'd have experience. Yeah, right. Sullivan has Cram testify that Gacy ran his business out of his house and that he would get hired as a general contractor and then sub out the work to his own employees to maximize profits. That Gacy was skilled at reading blueprints and that despite the fact that he had a bookkeeper, Gacy did his own books and wrote all the employees' checks. He further established that Gacy bid all of his own jobs. He mentored Cram when he started his own business, teaching him how to bid, how to measure out for material, how to figure out what amount of manpower would be needed for a job how long the jobs would last, cost per man, taking a percentage for yourself, everything that was required to successfully run a contracting company. Sullivan probed on, establishing that this man was not insane. He was a proficient, methodical businessman. Cram stated that the creep planned out for jobs weeks in advance, that he was running multiple jobs with different crews at the same time. He claimed Gacy bragged about having six bank accounts and that he was financially secure and that his business was valued at a half a million dollars. Sullivan turns his attention to Cram and Gacy's personal relationship. Question, what type of person was he to be with on a social level? He was a jolly type of guy. He always played the official part all the time and he liked having things his own way. And he liked doing more or less what he wanted to, but still blend into the crowd. Would you describe him as being independent? Very. Do you know any activities that Mr. Gacy was involved in in the community? Yeah, he was the street and lighting commissioner of Norwood Park Township and a precinct captain and a maintenance man. You said he was a precinct captain? Yes. Did you in fact help him with his duties as a precinct captain at all, Mr. Cram? Oh yeah. Well, what were some of those duties that you helped him with? Uh, canvassing the polls, walking and talking door to door with people, finding out what their problems were. And if there were problems, finding out what the committee could do to help. We'd have uh, to campaign for different politicians, make up signs and spend many hours on that. Did he have a key for the precinct headquarters? Yes, he did. Did you discuss with him his intention or lack of intention about running for any kind of political office? Yes. He was very enthused about that. He wanted to run for some kind of office. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but 
He liked the sense of power, you know, uh, that's really what he wanted. As he said, the more power that he could have, the reason he did all of these favors for the township was so that he could have this power. The more power he had, the more favors he could do for the people that he knew. Sullivan then uses Cram to lay the foundation to get the pictures of the interior of the creep's house into evidence. Pics of the tiki bar, the pool table, Casey's Barca lounger with the phone next to it where he took all of his calls. Did you ever notice any drugs in the house? Oh yeah, where'd he keep these drugs? Uh, he had them in the refrigerator, behind the bar, a couple places behind the pictures. Did he ever offer you these drugs? Yes. How many times? I've, anytime I, I wanted them, really. In your presence, did he ever offer these drugs to any other teenagers? Yes, but employees were free to, you know, if we were all dragged out in the morning, uh, he used to give us a pep pill uh, or speed or whatever you want to call it, and you know, to get us going or something like that. Do you know where he got these drugs from? Well, you know, we used to remodel drugstores, and uh, as we were remodeling the drugstores, we'd have complete access to everything. So you're saying that he would take them from the drugstores? Yes. Would Gacy smoke marijuana with you? Yes, he more or less kept up with us. Uh, he'd smoke a half a joint or so, but he'd get real tired and stuff. Did he act like he was trying to keep up with you? Yes, uh, that's exactly what he did. In relation to his drinking, what type of drinker would you describe Mr. Gacy as? Uh, you know, a social drinker. Well, all right, like we'd be out in a bar and, you know, everybody you know and the employees or whatever. And we'd be there and we used to go to this one place uh, that, uh, you know, Ed Hefner used to tend bar at and it was called the Coach's Corner. And we used to go there and he more or less would like stay one drink behind but act like he was two drinks ahead. You know, that's, that's what he did. Would you describe him as a big drinker? Uh, you know, I mean, if you wanted to, I, I've seen him put him away a couple times, but nah, I wouldn't describe him as a big drinker. Approximately how many times during the entire two and a half years that you knew him did you see Mr. Gacy drunk? Mm, I could probably count on my hands four, five, six times, something like that. Did you ever see Mr. Gacy take drugs? Yeah, there, there were a few times that he took them. What types of drugs did he take during those few times? Well, he did a couple of tranquilizers now and then, and you know, and speed. You know, well, for about two weeks, he wanted to lose weight, and he was taking, like, speed, like, every day. He mostly, you know, would say that he took more than what he actually took, you know? So during the two and a half years that you knew him, tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury how many times you saw Mr. Gacy when he was affected by drugs. Not too many times, like, you know, uh, just not too many times, just once in a great while. Were you with Mr. Gacy at any time when he would smoke what you describe as a half a joint of marijuana? Yes. And he'd be drinking? Yeah, he, usually what we'd do is, you know, we'd sit down around and have a couple of beers or he'd have a scotch or something like that. and. Either myself or one of the other employees would ask, uh, hey, you got any smoke, you know? And, you know, we'd go roll a joint and just relax from a day's work. During this time, did you see Mr. Gacy, in fact, smoke marijuana and have a drink or two? Yeah, he, you know, he had a couple of drinks and smoked, uh, you know, about a half a joint. Then what happened to him? 
Uh, he'd be sleeping in his chair, his lounge chair. Would you describe that as the usual effect on him? Basically, yeah. Let me ask you this. During the entire two and a half years, on any occasion that you saw him mix both some sort of drug and alcohol, did you ever see him go into any kind of rage? What do you mean by rage? Did you ever see him go into any sort of like mad rage? No. During the times that you were at taverns, how would Mr. Gacy act in relation to females? You know, same way any other guy would. You know, we'd sit around there and, you know, act like a bunch of howling dogs, I guess you'd say. You know, just talk to them, you know, like stuff like that. Did he, in fact, talk to the women in the bars? Sure. What was your conversation that you would have with Mr. Gacy in relation to women? You know, the usual conversation. You know, how they were built, how they were stacked, you know. Did you ever hear Mr. Gacy brag about the women he was dating? Yeah, yeah, he used to. You know, he was hung up on a couple of them. He was even talking about, you know, marriage. You know, nothing ever came of it, but, you know, he liked girls. You know, he, he liked girls with a, a strong backbone. It's, you know, like, the, you know, he didn't like the ones that you yell at and they climb on a table. He, he liked the ones that stood up to him. In relation to Mr. Gacy telling you that he was bisexual, did he speak with you about this more than once? Yeah, a few times. During this period of time, did he tell you whether or not he was concerned whether he was having sex with a man or a woman and why or why not? Not really, because he didn't really much care, just so long as, you know, excuse the phrase, he got his cookies off. Is that what he said? Something to that effect. During the time that you knew him, did he have any cars that had any red spotlights on them? Yeah, yeah, the last few cars he owned, like the one he bought, this real sharp, uh, you know, old Cutlass, you know, brand new. Did they have a spotlight on it? Yeah. Yeah, each, each one had a red spotlight, and they were all black. He bought them black, you know, uh, because he said the township, you know, they would put the lights on them, you know, make them look like they were more of an official township car. Would you say that Mr. Gacy liked to play cop? Oh, yeah. Describe that. Well, one time we were going down the expressway, and it was rather uh, late at night, and we'd just gotten off a job, and this Lincoln was coming off the ramp, and... It, it's going really fast on the expressway, you know, coming in and out. And uh, we kind of were like, what, what the heck is this guy doing? Uh, you know, and then he go, you want to follow him for a bit? And I said, sure, let's see, let's see what he's up to. Did you, in fact, follow him? Yes, we did. What happened after that? Well, the guy pulled over. Apparently, had, you know, he'd run out of gas. And I don't know where this guy, you know, got a gas can from, you know, from the back seat. But uh, I don't know why, but he had it there. So... You know, we pull over this little guy. He's, he's like Arabic or gypsy or something like that. You know, he comes out and he's filling up the gas can. So, uh, you know, we stopped and John asked him, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, hey, do you want to act like a couple cops and find out what this guy's doing? And I said, uh, yeah, sure, you know. So, you know, we got out of the car. We walked over to the driver's side and uh, identified myself as Officer Cram. And, you know, John was a few feet behind me. Did the man eventually take off? Yeah, he did, uh, you know, and we jumped in our car real quick and, you know, chased him down the Addison off-ramp. Who was driving the car? John was, and, you know, we had the lights going, you know, lights on both lights, and we, you know, we were hitting it with the spotlight. In fact, did this car crash? Yeah, yes, it did. 
Was there a Chicago policeman there at the time? Well, after a crash, we went down Addison and, you know, crossing the intersection and, uh, you know, detectives seen our lights and, and, you know, we motioned him to come on, uh, you know. So we were both like pursuing this guy and was the man arrested? Yeah, he, you know, he went down a couple blocks and they ended up crashing into a couple of cars, you know, and they slapped the cuffs on him and, you know, then they threw him in the back of our car. They thought we were detectives and, you know, that the, you know, they were going on with stuff and, you know, with people that they're own, you know, that own the cars and stuff like that. Did Mr. Gacy tell the police officers after our time that he, in fact, was not a policeman? Yes, uh, you know, the man was removed from Mr. Gacy's car and, and put into the police car. Did you ever see Mr. Gacy or know him to have a Chicago Police Department badge? Yeah, he had, he had one. I believe it was a Chicago Patrolman's badge and he kept it in his terrarium. Did you ever see the badge? Yes, I did. You said he kept it in a terrarium. Yeah, he had it underneath the dirt and stuff under there. At any time when you were driving with Mr. Gacy, did he in fact ever take you to a place that he called Bughouse Square? Yeah, well, he did. Sullivan cuts Cram off. Hmm, I wonder why. Just answer yes or no. I yes. What, if anything, did Mr. Gacy say when you were at Bughouse Square? Uh, he said this is where the fags hang out. At any time, did you observe in or around Mr. Gacy's house any books on gay bars? Yeah, he, he was cleaning out his dresser or his desk and, he, you know, he just tossed it up on the counter. Were there other times when you were with Mr. Gacy when he would just turn on his red lights while driving the streets of Chicago or around the expressways? Yeah, he used to barrel down the expressways all the time. We kind of like, you know, pull people over with those spotlights, you know, and kind of chuckle off and, you know, keep on going down the expressway. So he liked to play cop. Yes. Let's turn to a time in August or September of 1976. Did Mr. Gacy have a garage on the property at 8213 West Somerdale? Yes, he did. At any time, were you in that garage during those two months? Yeah, several times. Did you find anything in that garage during that time period? Yeah, one time I was cleaning out the garage and I, I found a couple of wallets with uh, identification in them. And, you know, I looked through them and one didn't fit me and, you know, one did. And the description, and, you know, so I went to the house and I asked him if, uh, hey, you mind if I uh, just take these pieces of identification? You know, which was the driver's license. Why did you want the identification? <laughs> so I go out drinking. So you were underage at that time, is that correct? Yeah. Did Mr. Gacy say anything to that question? <sighs> yeah, he, he chuckled it off and, you know, he said, I didn't want those. The way, you know, they were from some deceased person or something like that. You know, something that had to do with some kind of syndicate. Did he tell you anything about the syndicate in relation to the identification? Yeah, he, he said that he used to set people up for the syndicate or something. Did he at any time give you any items of jewelry? Yeah, he gave me a couple of watches. When he gave you this watch, did he tell you where the watch came from? Yeah, same place as he told me the wallet came from, you know, the first one. Calling your attention to your birthday, 1976, were you at Mr. Gacy's house on the evening of your birthday? Yes, I was. Did anything unusual occur that evening? Yes. Uh, when I came in, it was my birthday, and, you know, he had a clown suit on. He, you know, he said he was preparing for the next day, and, you know, he had some kind of benefit charity to do with some kids, you know, with the clowning. 
And uh, he thought it would be rather cute, you know, if you know, seeing it was my birthday, that he'd leave the uniform on. And, uh, you know, he was showing me the hand puppets and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, then he came up with the handcuff trick. And uh, what do you mean by handcuff trick? Well, you know, how you can escape from handcuffs. Did he, in fact, demonstrate how he... He demonstrated, uh, you know, how how he shook him off. And, you know, he was so proud. I, I didn't really pay attention to it. Did he ask you if he could perform the trick on you? Yeah. He said to me, uh, you know, maybe sometime I'll need it. Did he, in fact, put the handcuffs on you? Yes, he did. Were they in front of you or in back of you? In front of me. Were you able to escape the handcuffs? No. Uh, you know, the trick was you needed the key. At the time that you were handcuffed, did Mr. Gacy say anything to you or do anything to you? Well, I held the handcuffs up and I told him, you know, get them off. And, uh, you know, he grabbed me you know, in between by the chain and he swung me around the room a couple of times, you know, and I, I you know, I just started screaming. I said, get these things off me, you know. Did he say anything to you at that time? Yes, you know, he said, he's, you know, I'm going to rape you. And, you know, I kind of freaked out. I straightened up a bit. And did you do anything at the time? Yeah, I, I ended up kicking him in the head. Did Mr. Casey then take the cuffs off? No, I did. How'd you get him off? Well, I got, I got the key. Where'd you get the key? Out of his pocket, you know, because they were, they were laying on the counter, you know, one or the other two. So you, you need the key to get out, is that correct? Oh, for sure. Now, keep in mind that both sides prep all of their witnesses before trial. Not only is it okay to prepare the witnesses by doing a dry run of your questions with them in preparation of trial, it's ineffective if you don't. Neither side can afford to be surprised by an answer that their witness gives. It can destroy a case that has been so carefully prepared. And Cram and Rossi are the two most dangerous witnesses that the state puts on the stand because the things that they have seen and done with Gacy could easily be construed by the jury that they, in fact, were accomplices. Keeping that in mind, Sullivan is about to get into the digging in the crawl. Question, did Mr. Gacy tell you that he wanted you to do something else? Yeah, he, he said he wanted me to go down into the crawl space. So, you know, he was having a plumber do some work down there. And before they can get down there, the plumber wanted him to dig out the area where the clay pipes were going to be laid. Now, in fact, did he take you down into the crawl space? Yes. How'd he get down there? Cram points on the diagram where the trap door to the crawl is located. So you would go into that closet area and there would be a crawl space. Is that correct? Yeah. So the trap door would have to be lifted up and then you would descend through there. Is that correct? Yeah. So when you got down into the crawl space, did Gacy tell you what he wanted done? Yeah, he told me that I was the trench, you know. In fact, he showed me, uh, you know, a couple, a little bit what he wanted done. He showed me how deep to dig. So he himself shoveled. Yeah, a few shovels. He showed you how deep he wanted you to shovel. Yes. How deep was it? A couple feet, about knee high, somewhere in there. Then did he describe where he wanted you to dig these trenches? Yeah, he did. How many trenches did he want you to dig? Well, basically two long ones. 
Sullivan then has Cram pinpoint where Gacy told him to dig. Question, did he also indicate any other trenches that he wanted you to dig that day? Well, right where the tile piping is, the, you know, the clay pipe was broken. He wanted me to more or less make a drain so the water would flow from where the pipe was because the water was coming up into the sewer itself where the sump pump was. Am I correct that he wanted you to dig one trench to the front of the house and then east and then another shorter, more smaller trench? About three foot, yeah. Did you in fact dig down there that day? Yes, I did, for about four or five hours, somewhere in there. Were you able to stand up down there in that crawl space? No, you'd have to like crouch over, there, there wasn't enough room. Sullivan then has Cram step down from the witness box to demonstrate for the jury what he had to do in order to dig down there. You know, so I, yeah, I had to crunch down more or less like this and, you know, and then just shoveled or, you know, get down on one knee and then, you know, just take the scoop. And it was kind of difficult until you got a few shovels out and then, you know, you could stand right in the trench and dig, but, you know, never stand up at any given time. It was always like, you know, crouched over like this, you know, uh, otherwise you'd bump your head or something to that effect. Sullivan then goes through the details of the trenches, the location, the length, the width, the depth. Let me ask you this, Mr. Cram. During the time that you worked there and were digging in the trenches, did you see any other new tiles? Uh, no, there wasn't any on the job. Now, while you were down there digging this day, did you notice any dirt mounds that you later described? Did you notice any of those down there when you were digging? Yes, I did. Can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what these dirt mounds were like? Well, they were about a foot, two foot high and uh, about the size of about four feet long, three feet long between there and, you know, about two feet wide. Sullivan then directs Cram through showing the jury where these mounds were located within the crawl. Did you tell anyone about these mounds at that time? No, I, I didn't have no reason to. At about this time, did Mr. Gacy ask you to spread anything in the crawl space? Well, there was one time I was asked to spread lime out, but did he tell you why? Yeah, because the seepage, the water seepage during the summertime, it would, you know, it got moldy and little landslides and things in the house and, you know, the lime would more or less sweeten the odor. Is that what Mr. Gacy told you? Right, you know, take the water seepage out of there. Sullivan stops the questioning about the digging at this point and goes back to questioning him about the business relationship and Gacy's business acumen. He then questions Cram about whether or not he had worked on December 11th, the day Peast went missing. He had not. Sullivan then moves on to December 13th, the day of the first search. He delves into Cram being with Gacy when he gets home after the search had taken place. Question, when you went into the house, did Mr. Gacy show you anything or did you have any conversation? Yeah, when we went in and walked into the office, I think right away, you know, he got the flashlight out of the drawer and, you know, he said, turn off the lights in case anybody's watching. So I turned off the lights and we proceeded walking through the house, you know, after, you know, after we looked through it real briefly. And then we turned off the light and, you know, started searching in his drawers and stuff and seeing what was missing or whatever. And, you know, they were upside down and everything was still there, but, you know, they were upside down. Did he tell you whether or not anything was missing after he went through his drawers? 
Yeah, he said they got some pills and some books and handcuffs. At that time, did you and Mr. Gacy proceed back to the area of the crawl space? Yeah, he'd seen, you know, he'd seen mud on the floor and he was asking me whether or not they were down there. After Mr. Gacy saw the mud, what, if anything, did he say or do? Well, I said, uh, you know, he said, do you think anybody's still down there? And I said, yeah, I doubt it very much. He goes, well, why don't you go see? And I said, nah, I, I said, told him, no, there's no sense in it. I had my good shoes on and, you know, my clothes and there's no sense in it. So he decided he was going to go down there. So he, you know, hopped down there and he looked around with the flashlight and he came back out, right? Yes, he did. Uh, he said, I, I wonder what they were looking for down there. Sullivan avoids questioning Cram about the day that the police questioned him. But instead, he asks him about his activities on the date of Gacy's arrest. You know, he got over to my house and he asked me if I wanted to make a few extra bucks, you know, and if I could drive him around because he was in no condition to drive. You know, he said he wanted Rossi to come meet us at my place, you know, because he wanted to talk to us. Did Mr. Gacy say anything to you at that time? Yeah, he seemed very disturbed. Uh, you know, he said he spent the entire evening in his lawyer's office and that, you know, he had confessed to 30 syndicate-related killings. He, you know, he was up all night. You know, and then he passed out on the couch and, you know, and then he wanted to go around saying his last goodbyes. And, you know, he told me it'd probably be the last time that we see him. Sullivan then questions Cram about the rest of the day ending with Cram having a discussion with the cops while Gacy was at the gas station handing weed to one of the attendants. So you talked to one of the police officers, correct? Yeah. And did you tell them what Mr. Gacy told you about the syndicate killings? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of disturbed me that he said this. And, you know, I talked to the police officer and, you know, I told him about this. And I said he was acting very strangely. Sullivan then slips in a question about Gacy's time in Iowa, specifically what he was arrested for. Cram begins to answer the question, stating that Gacy had told him that he had been arrested for pimping and prostituting and sodomy. And Moranti jumps up and objects and asks for a mistrial, stating that the jury should never have heard Gacy's criminal background from Iowa, that it changes everything in the jury's mind. And he's not wrong. This is an egregious error on the part of Sullivan because it does have an effect on the jurors. It plants the seed that the defendant is a felon. It's incredibly prejudicial. Here, Garippo overrules the objection and refuses to grant a mistrial because, well, Casey has 29 bodies buried on his property. Sullivan sits down and his direct is done. Mata Sr. stands up and begins his cross. Now. This is a tricky cross because at the end of the day, remember that the defense is not concerning themselves with the commission of the murders. They are concerned with painting the picture that Gacy is insane. And the best that Mata can try and do is establish that Cram has a bias against Gacy. And that is why he's testifying against him. Question, did he ever ask you to participate in any sexual conduct with him? Well, yes, he did. And did you participate? Sullivan objects. Garippo calls for a sidebar. Sullivan states his objection is to relevancy and states that Cram has advised him that he would exercise his Fifth Amendment right 
if he was asked this question. Mata Sr. states, that's too bad. Parippo overrules the objection, saying that Sullivan opened the door when he asked Cram about a time when Gacy had ripped his pants off while in the bedroom. Sullivan then states that after Mata asked the question about the consensual sex, that there be another sidebar, so that argument about Cram taking the fifth can be taken up. Mata is vehemently opposed to this. Quote, if that is the answer to this question, the jury is entitled to hear it. Grippo agrees, and he's right. When someone takes the fifth on the stand, refusing to answer a question, a certain inference is drawn by the jury. That inference being that they, in fact, did do whatever they're being accused of. Hence, the right against self-incrimination being invoked. The jury should always hear that. It goes directly to the credibility of the witness. So Mata asks the question again. And Cram, in fact, does plead the fifth. Mata then tries to mitigate the damage that was done by Cram regarding Gacy being only a social drinker and rarely taking recreational drugs. Mata makes very little headway as Cram sticks to his story. Now, if you're wondering why the defense doesn't start grilling Cram about his possible involvement with the murders, the answer is simple. They can't. Cross-examination is limited to only the areas that were covered during the direct examination. So if a lawyer goes beyond the scope, opposing counsel will object and it will be sustained. It is for this express reason that the state felt comfortable putting both Cram and Rossi on the stand because they would control what was going to be revealed to the jury and they weren't going to touch their possible involvement with a 10-foot pole. So Mata continues with the cross of Cram, pointing out inconsistencies between his 19-page statement that he made to the police and what he's testified to in court. He catches them on a few, but these small wins amount to nothing more than window dressing. Mata continues to try and establish that Cram was Gacy's sexual partner. Cram continues to take the fifth. Mata crosses Cram on the crawl space. Cram again maintains that he was only down there one time to dig. At the end of the day, Cram has little effect on the jury, as they didn't know then what we know now about Cram and Rossi. He appeared to the jury to be nothing more than a kid who worked with Gacy, lived with him for a while, and was suckered into unwittingly digging graves in the creep's crawl. The state would next call Michael Rossi. And I hate for this to be anticlimactic, but the reality is, is that his testimony was substantially similar to that of Cram's. We could basically sub out the name of Cram and replace it with Rossi, as the state was exceptionally careful when drafting the questions that they would be asking the pair. Kunkel handled the direct of Rossi and he did testify that he purchased Zick's car from Gacy, but he denied that he was aware of whose vehicle it was. At the end of the day, neither Rossi or Cram testified that they ever had any knowledge whatsoever that Gacy was killing all these young men. The state ended up using them simply to show that Gacy was a normal, competent businessman with strong ties to the community, that he was pleasant and jovial at times, and a friend to many people. In other words, that he was sane. The defense, for as much as they would have liked to, 
never got to get into just exactly how much the pair knew or how much they may have participated in the killing of these boys. It's one of the more frustrating aspects about the, quote, search for truth and justice in criminal cases because what is heard ultimately by the juries is carefully constructed by the state. In the case of Cram and Rossi, had the state decided to give them immunity, their testimony would have been vastly different. We may have gotten the details that we have sought for the last 40 years, but alas, it was not to be. Because frankly, the state didn't need to do it. They had all they needed with just that diagram of the crawl space sitting side by side with the map of the crawl that Gacy drew for the cops during one of his confessions. That was nearly 100% accurate as to the location of the bodies. That hand-drawn map cannot be explained away by anyone. The state then calls officers Bedeau, Hackmeister, and Schultz. Every story that they tell on the stand, you have heard during the course of this podcast. Every word. They tell the jury what you already know about the surveillance, the investigation, and the arrest of the creep. The state then calls Gacy's friend, Ron Rohde, who testifies that Gacy had been a good friend to him and his family, and that on December 21st, Gacy told him that he'd killed around 30 people. The state then calls Dan Genty. You remember Dan the Digger, the Cook County Sheriff Police who was charged with the unimaginable task of digging up the graveyard. He gave the jury every awful detail that he gave you on this podcast. Officers Bedeau and Hackmeister are then recalled. They testify about Gacy's multiple confessions that Mike Albrecht drafted reports about from his notes and his memory, all of them. And if you're wondering how they are able to testify about what would clearly be considered hearsay as they are out-of-court statements that are offered for the truth of the matter that they assert, well, it's because they are statements that fall under the hearsay exception of a statement against interest which is essentially a statement that the courts have found to be reliable because typically we don't confess to doing things that we know will get us in trouble. So when you have a situation, as in the Gacy case, where both sides know that there is no way in hell that the defendant is going to testify, this is a perfect example of how the state gets the defendant's confessions into evidence. The states then call another cop, Philip Bedecker, to testify about when Gacy, after he was arrested, took the cops to the location where he dumped Peace's body. The state then calls Larry Finer, and he is a state's attorney, and the state uses him to get the hand-drawn map of the graves into evidence. Now, Larry Finer was not allowed to try the case along with the others for this express reason. You cannot be both a witness and a lawyer in a case. They needed to get that map into evidence. So Finder took one for the team. Rafael Tovar was called to testify about the statement that Gacy made to him while he was transporting Gacy post-arrest. He did not testify that Gacy told him that he had killed 45 people. The state then also called Dan Genty back, Dr. Stein and two other doctors, all who testified about the recovery and identification process of the victims found in the crawl. They called six more witnesses, consisting of doctors and cops, who all testified about the recovery and identification of the bodies recovered from the river. The state's final witness in their case in chief was to recall ASA Larry Finder. 
who testified about the detailed accounts of the killings that Gacy provided to him during his fourth confession. The state's goal was to leave the jury thinking about what these young men had endured before meeting their ultimate demise at the hands of the killer clown. With that, the state rested. Now, if you're saying to yourself, wait a second, Bob, why the hell didn't they call any mental health experts? They have to prove that Gacy's sane, and, you know, it's a great question. The state's approach to tackling proving that Gacy was sane was going to be through the testimony that this guy was normal in every single way, but that underneath it all, he was evil. He was a bad egg. They felt that the best way to show that was to demonstrate through the testimony of friends, employees, neighbors, business partners, ex-spouses, that he was this helpful, friendly, driven, successful businessman. Not one of the state's witnesses testified to ever seeing his dark side. Not one of them testified that they ever saw him acting off or violent, even when under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The state is contending that you can't have it both ways, that no person is capable of being completely normal a majority of the time and then turn into someone that cannot control their compulsions to comply with the law. It's their position that there does not exist such a person. It then becomes the defense's sole job to show that there is such a person and that he happens to be sitting in the courtroom with them. He is the anomaly. And as such, it is incumbent upon us as a society to hospitalize him, to study him, to try and understand how such a person can exist in the world. Hey guys, what's up? It's Darren. That was the first half of episode 33. We decided to cut it into two parts because, um, well, because of the overall length, it's going to be like seven hours long or something. So we'll be back at you with the second half um, shortly. So yeah, thanks for listening. Because without you, Bob is just some old ass man talking about some old ass case. Talk at you next time or week or whatever he usually says. Thanks again. <laughs>